The threat against democracy is less about white supremacy than it is about rigid gender roles. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, for the simple days. It's all so confusing now. Can we just go back to how it was? And those words may sound harmless, but that sentiment really is the driving force behind the surge of today's violent authoritarianism. We're seeing a growing, often fierce pressure to force a return to simple gender roles. It ain't going to happen. The question is, what's it going to take to embrace and understand a more accurate spectrum of gender roles? For that matter, when did the simple old definitions take hold? Has it not always been simple male-female? In her new book, Genders, parentheses around the letter S, our guest today, Catherine Bond Stockton, examines gender in light of biology's own strange ways. It's out of sickness, syncness with male and female. She prints, points out attempts to fortify gender with clothing, language, labor, and hair. My generation knows about that. Stockton investigates gender as a concept, its concerning history, its curious pleasures and falsifications by meeting this moment of where we are with its many genders and counters to gender. It is a brave new world, and we can't go back. Actually, maybe nothing really has changed. It's just our conventional wisdom that is challenged, and perhaps it's about time. Thank you for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Catherine Bond Stockton. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Bert. Catherine Bond Stockton is a distinguished professor of English and inaugural dean of the School for Cultural and Social Transformation at the University of Utah, an interesting state to do that stuff. She is the author of Beautiful Bottom, Beautiful Shame, Where Black Meets Queer, The Queer Child or Growing Sideways in the 20th Century and Making Out among other books. The new book, Genders, is subtitled Why Gender is Strange, Even When It's Played Straight, and How Race and Money Are Two of Its Most Dramatic Ingredients. Wow, there's a lot to talk about, and this is important stuff. How did this book come to be written? What is the cultural context? Yeah, that's a great question. I was happily minding my own business, and MIT Press came looking for a book entitled Genders. I think they felt strongly that there's so many questions that people have now that people do want to understand. Many people are meeting other people who are identifying in different and new ways, at least to their way of thinking. Um, and so I think the wish to have a book 
that would help people sort of think through what might seem like a fairly confusing or maybe gleeful set of changes that people think they see before them. Mm, gleeful. You know, I, there's nothing like freeing oneself up from former, uh, you know, fortresses and, and barriers, right. that, that freedom. Yeah, I like freedom. I really do. <laughs> There's a widespread <laughs> lack of clarity regarding the mm -hmm. difference between sex and gender. People confuse yes. them all the time. Well, it's important for this discussion to define terms. Help us, please. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think it is very interesting that when you talk to people, they might use the word sex in terms of, say, somebody's genital configuration. They might use the term gender. Now we have gender reveal parties. We can talk about that. But just going to the question of the definitions, you know, being an English professor, I thought, I'll go to the dictionary and see what the dictionary says. And if you go to the dictionary, you'll find that the dictionary says that sex is biological. The dictionary sort of links sex to genitals or reproductive structures, whereas gender is more cultural, having to do with behavior or dress or mindset. But still, I think the general notion is that sex is a kind of biological genital anchor to gender's more cultural expressions. Now, here's what causes trouble for any of that clarity. Um, if you do a little research on this and it doesn't take much, you find out that there are actually five fetal layers to a baby's sex. And of course, only one of which we see when we're sexing the child at birth, and that's the newborn's genitals. So we don't see the other four layers of sex, chromosomes, gonads, fetal hormones, and internal reproductive structures, which, by the way, may disagree with each other. It's sort of a way of thinking that, you know, we biologically disagree with ourselves in some cases. So I'll just say, based on that one layer that we see, we tend to shout at birth, you know, it's a boy, right. it's a girl, right? But I think it's interesting that the idiom is not, it's a male, it's a female. So quite consequentially, we use a gender word, boy or girl, for the newborn sex. And that means that culture, in the form of a word, with its massive connotations, which is lowered like a cone over the baby, <laughs> is already driving our view of a sex that we ourselves have simplified. Wow. Yeah, I certainly had never thought about that. And, and it is so simple uh, to just uh, look down there, boy, girl. Right, right. But, but, <laughs> but those five layers of sex present at birth, it might be, uh, I certainly never thought about that. And right. but, but as you describe it, it does kind of make sense. So maybe you can talk about those five sex layers and how mm -hmm. they kind of betray our attempts at easy certainty. Yes, absolutely. And this is also probably surprising maybe to some listeners that the incidence of what we might call intersex, where a body does not fit the typicalities of male and female, may be as high as one in 60. So this is not an uncommon thing that layers of our fetal sex disagree with each other. Uh, this is more common than generally thought. And what that means is we sort of make this presumption at birth, right? And again, it's so rigorous and so thoroughgoing. That's why I call it like lowering a cone, almost, you know, putting a child in a full body word suit, if you want to put it that way. And this one word then comes to define what the baby is. And of course, for a long time, we've made it very difficult to get that word off of you and get another word onto you if that is your wish. 
So that that question of what we see at birth and the attachment of the word, which of course we can't tattoo onto a child's body, right? Which is part of the reason why we then have to fortify that baby's sex, gender with all kinds of things, toys and hair and color and dress, mm. right? It's, it's as if we don't take that to be natural. We believe it's natural, but then we go about it as if we must keep fortifying that sex gender at every turn. What's that about? Well, that is interesting because we all know little kids who have the parents and friends have tried their best you know, innocently to fortify mm-hmm. that with certain toys, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. it doesn't always work. And the no. kids have no idea. Yeah. But right. but uh, that's an interesting process. And yes, it, it, with regard to fortifying, you know, the, the military, the, I, I did a show mm-hmm. recently on, on trans troops in the military. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, how do they confuse the quest to clarify sex and gender, transforming the soldier into a battleground, him or herself, in the process? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think the soldier is an interesting figure. And I want to underscore here that I'm talking about the soldier as a figure, right? Not individual people who may be soldiers. So I think it's important to kind of think about the symbology of mm-hmm, the soldier, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm talking about it here. And obviously that's what uh, has led, of course, originally to a trans ban as soon as it became right. known that people were coming forward as trans folks wanting to serve in the military. And of course, as you know, probably from the conversation you had, Obama lifted the ban, yes. then Trump reestablished the ban, and now Biden has lifted the ban yet again. So the question is, you know, what's the threat of having transgender soldiers in our midst? You know, Trump tried to make it seem that it's too expensive. We cannot have gender-affirming health care for trans soldiers. Um, So that was one ruse. But, of course, the cost is tiny, so that can't be the story at all. And I think the issue is more later what he described as the disruption that would happen to our military yeah. if we had trans soldiers serving, right? And of course, we'd already gone through that with gay soldiers, this notion that soldiers would completely fall apart if the man next to them seemed to be attracted to them. You know, soldiers quaking in their boots from somebody's attraction. But of course, you know, women soldiers have gone through that yeah. so much worse, you know, I'd serving say. in the military, right? Yeah. But I guess the last thing I'd want to say about the battleground, as I began to think about it, is that the soldier is a very interesting figure of gender nonconformity. And I think that might surprise most people until you think about one of the most fundamental features, again, I'm talking about symbology here, which is the soldier's need to obey, right? I mean, nothing's more important than the chain of command and that a soldier be obedient. And if you think about it, that's a, a, a characteristic that we would generally associate with femininity. But it's the soldier's uniformity, the soldier's movability to be moved in space as needed, to be deployed right in a moment's notice. And even, I think, the confession from military people over time about the tremendous fear faced in battle, right, when people are honest about it. There's so many aspects that actually then begin to sound like conventional ways that we define femininity. And, of course, I don't mean that as a critique of the soldier either, right? (laughs) I don't think having anything sound feminine is a critique of anyone. 
But I think it's a surprise since we think of the soldier as a figure of manliness. Absolutely. And really, really at the core is this docility and obedience, um, again, by command. Wow, so interesting. I mean, generally, you know, the soldier is held up as a tremendously macho, masculine ideal, and yet here we're saying uh, docility and obedience is essential to be a soldier. Boy, you talk about taking on uh, (laughs) conventional wisdom. Such a good (laughs) point, my goodness. And, you know, as, as we grow up, there's gender labels clothes, toys, hair, even colors, Mm -hmm. all can be Mm -hmm. tools that collectively build what you call our gender fort. Please explain that. What's a gender fort? Yeah, really, if you think about it, there's sort of a six layer, right, to the baby when it's born. So we've talked about the five fetal layers of sex, that last one being the external genitals, which cause us to attach this word. But really, the sixth layer, if you think about it, is gender. Now we're starting to gender the child. Again, imagine what its behavior should be, how it should be dressed, what type of mindset befits a boy or a girl, right? We convey all of this very early in life. And even if we're loosening that up a good deal, then the question is, if we're completely loosening that up and we're saying boys and girls are interchangeable, then why are we so determined still to make a boy or girl from birth without the child's consent. So that's, and I say that very tenderly, right? Because parents are in a system of sex gender. Here again, I'm not critiquing uh, individual parents. Everybody is sort of doing what the culture dictates in that way. But if you think about it, to make this decision before a child is even in language and can tell us who they think themselves to be, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And the gender fortification are all the moves that we make to sort of fortify and shore up that notion of gender, of course, including quite profoundly the pronoun attached to the child in language. Boy, you know, I, that strikes very close to home. I will tell you, I, I, my brother, uh, it, it was when he was very young, he was called a sissy. It, it was like there was mm-hmm. something wrong with him. He kind of played yes. with dolls a little bit. And it was mm-hmm. very, very oppressive. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he is gay. He's been married to the same person for, I don't know, close to 50 years now. You know, and, <laughs> <laughs> but what an incredible hardship. And it's so unnecessary. You know, and... Yes. You know, we, we've pretty much accepted uh, homosexuality, uh, mm-hmm. pretty much. But we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to the point that, you know, the, the, the far right is not there yet, and that's a big problem. Right. But right. I did find it, maybe I'm all by myself on this one, I found it disturbing. So much media attention to the adoption of twins by Secretary of Transportation mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg and his husband, mm-hmm. Jason. One might think that by now such things would not be at all newsworthy. The only thing that should matter, in my opinion, is if they can be loving parents. One's gender identity is really a non-issue. But you say there's reason to care Mm -hmm. because the concept of gender itself is queer, as in strange and unexpected for each and every one of us. Explain that, please. Right. So, you know, sort of beginning with your question about gayness, right? 
it used to be the case that gay people would have to keep presenting themselves to the public as like good tax abiding citizens, right? So if I can prove my goodness to you and my sameness with you, then you'll give me my rights. Well, I think people working in the field of queer theory, as I do, for quite a long time now, really going back to the 1990s, have tried to flip that terminology and to say, it's not that we are like you, it's that you are like us <laughs> in this sense, right? In this sense. I'm not saying that a straight person is gay, but what right. I'm saying is gender is strange for all of us. And sometimes the most conventional views are the strangest ones of all. So in a sense, I think we should always flip that term and ask all of us to really consider what makes gender so mysterious, uh, so difficult, so complicated to actually live with on the ground, right? The gender ideals are one thing, but the gender ideals are not where we live. And that causes that kind of out of syncness with the terms male and female and all the expectations attached to them. So that's in part what I mean by gender is queer, not that gender is LGBTQIA+, right. <laughs> but, but that gender is strange for each and every one of us because we all sit inside this system that, again, is imposed upon us from our earliest days. And then we have to figure out how to manage ourselves um, and journey inside that system. Just fascinating. There's so much here. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. We see what is projected for us, and you know we're chained in there, and we can't see it. And it's very yes. difficult to get out of the cave and to to, to be in the light. Mm -hmm. But it's something mm -hmm. really important that we should do. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with author Catherine Bond Stockton about her new book, Genders, that's gender with an S in parentheses. Uh, it is subtitled, Why Gender is Strange, Even When It's Played Straight, How Race and Money Are Two of Its Most Dramatic Ingredients. This is fascinating and, I dare say, liberating stuff that we're talking about. <laughs> Mail, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> uh, freedom ain't easy, but it's... It's worth right. it. It's worth it. It's so much easier to just uh, keep that uh, cone around you, but not right. better. Not better. Male and female are, of course, the binaries we've come to accept as foundational. But you say since the nation's founding, we have consciously, often legally, had at least a six-sex system. What? Please say more about that. <laughs> right. I think it's probably that sounds confusing when people hear it. Yeah. But I think immediately when I start explaining it, it may make sense. So here's what I would say is that if you think about it, the terms man and woman, right, boy or girl, if you see those terms on a page or on a bathroom door, they don't confess their racialized histories in this country. But going back to the 13 colonies, we've really made legal and often biological distinctions, however bogus, of course, between at least six categories. So going back to the founding of the country, distinguishing uh, categories of white man, white woman, black man, black woman, native man, native woman. Mm. And of course, and then sort of joined by, you know, other sexes and other territories. But my point is there can be no opposites with six or more sexes. So really due to the U.S. system of race, the opposite sex is a phantom concept and nobody lives it. <laughs> This is so interesting. Being a parent myself, I, I know many parents who've had 
frankly, a very hard time with the phenomenon about transitioning. There's great concern about mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. their children being teens transitioning at too young right. an age before they have the maturity to make such a big life-changing decision. And right. that, that, you know, fits in with what we were talking about here about, about this cone being put over them. What about, mm -hmm. do, do, you know, how do you know if, if, you know, they're transitioning at too young an age before they uh, should be making such a big life-changing decision? Well, again, I would kind of turn that around and say the parent has already made that big life-determining decision for the child without their consent. <laughs> so it's interesting that we're worried about the child, you know, somehow having agency in this when, again, the agency from the child, you know, has been has been taken right at birth. So, yeah, I think it's a complicated thing. Um, one thing I think I would say is, you know, as I've sometimes talked with parents, parents often seek me out, you know, I might be at a yoga retreat and somebody goes, Hey, Catherine, I really need you to talk to this person over here. They're going through a difficult time. And I always know what that's going to be because it's going to be that, let's say the person they thought it was their daughter, right. Is saying they're their son or their child is now saying they're non-binary. So I know these are complicated things for parents, you know, to deal with, particularly, you know, if they haven't yet thought a lot about them uh, in this world. But the thing that I would say is that one of the things that parents often convey to me is just how heartbreaking it feels to them that their child wants to now look like this completely different person. And I try to point out to them that that's understandable. You have been attached to this particular surface of your child, right? And with, with tremendous passion, right? You have loved that, that surface, that look of your child. But given the depth of your attachment to that surface, you can probably then understand people's own attachment to their surface, which is to say that surface is deep. And the fact that a parent might feel so deeply troubled over watching that change should be the very clue to how deeply their child may feel that need to present in a very different way. So I think sometimes we have it backwards. It's not that surface is shallow. It's that surface is exceedingly profound and really runs through us uh, in a very uh, determined way. Wow. Again, a lot to think about there. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more stories these days of children uh, believing that there's something other than they were assigned at birth. And it seems mm -hmm. like a novel new phenomenon. But you claim it started a century ago. Give us a bit of that yes. history. Yeah, it's a very interesting history. And I'll tell you, there's a wonderful book uh, to read on this now. It's by Jules Gill-Peterson, and her book is called Histories of the Transgender Child. So if you want more on this, that is the book for you. But what was interesting to me, one of the reasons I thought, I don't know if I could write this book, is that I, who had directed gender studies for 11 years, wasn't quite sure where I would say the concept began. You know, I had mm. never actually researched that. And indeed, it's sort of Jules' book that brings us into that fray. So what we find out is that gender was created in the 1950s as a concept to actually save the binary division of sex from its own collapse. <laughs> now, I would have said, I don't know what you would have said, Bert. I would have said, oh, I think feminists have come up with this notion of gender, right? And, and what a cool move to make, right? So yes, maybe sex is biological and is an anchor, but then gender is this changeable thing that we can unmake, undo, unlearn, you know, free ourselves, you know, as you might say. 
But it turns out that gender is not like our superhero, but could feel like a bit of a traitor insofar as gender is concocted by John Money, a person researching at Johns Hopkins University, again, in the 1950s, to try to make sense of all the kids that were being brought to the clinic. And these are kids who we would now call intersex and or transgender kids, uh, kids who did not feel right in their bodies or their gender uh, as assigned at birth. And what began happening here is that the researchers, more than anybody, began to realize that this notion of a determining sex at birth is pretty indeterminate. And then the question sort of became, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do? And the concept of gender was formed, which I can say more about, but you might have a question right there. (laughs) Again, wow. (laughs) But so what was it before the 1950s? Well, before the 1950s, the word gender was not used. So the word gender would have been used for questions of language, right? Like the gendering inside the French language, right? A a law or lure or whatever. So gender was really a linguistic term before that time. So this notion of a gender in relationship to a sex really did not exist. Though, again, as Jules points out in her book, this is taking place over five decades So before 1950, when John Money sort of makes this move to coin the term gender in this particular way, a lot is going on inside these clinics in terms of what people are seeing. So it's not like a snap of the fingers. But essentially what happens is, is that Money and his colleagues, John Money, great pun in the name, right? John Mm -hmm. Money Mm -hmm. and his colleagues essentially end up rolling 1950s norms over the scientific data they were seeing really to defend themselves against what the data was showing, right? (laughs) And so the notion of gender becomes this idea of two developmental channels that a child must grow in, either male or female. So even though the child is sort of born rather indeterminate, plastic or moldable, you might say, money felt the child is only moldable for a certain time, kind of up to 18 months. And then the child should be made to grow in these developmental channels which he called gender. And the whole reason being was to avoid social stigma, right? We don't want to stigmatize a child. But if you think about it, it's just such a circular reasoning. In the end, you sort of have society's forced binary correcting a problem of its own making, and then medicine complies against its own research. So it's sort of, you know, you can't make this stuff up, is what I would say. Well, they, they do want to get paid for their work after all, so you can't upset things too much. Well, Indeed. I, I love history, and I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, like well before the 50s, like in the 19th, 18th, 17th centuries, what, mm-hmm. was there less of a boys and girls, uh, you know, strict, rigid definition? No, of course, you know, always this sort of binary that was being presented. But I think if we look back in time, what we can see clearly, right, is the way class structure, for example, created Uh mildly different uh, determinations for what a woman or what a man might be, right? I don't know how we have, like, repressed all this that is right before our eyes, that if you think of all the class stratifications going on, and then again, as I say, the racial stratifications going on, I don't know how we've ever gotten ourselves to believe 
that there are these two stable categories, male and female, right? So even if you just look generationally over your own family, right? I still walk under the sign woman, though I identify as a non-binary genderqueer person. But if I look at the change from my grandmother to my mother to me, I don't see how you could ever imagine that the word woman neatly or, you know, simply fits all three of us in these highly different times that we've lived in Uh under exceedingly different circumstances. So always this multiplication was happening, you know, inside the lives of people called men or women. But somehow we keep convincing ourselves that there's like a biological anchor that determines it all. But then what explains all this tremendous variance, as you point out, over time? Wow. Fascinating stuff. It, it really is. And it's a lot to think about. And it has a lot to do with uh, our choices for the future, really. I mean, mm-hmm. what has appeared to be on the outside, this far-right, uh, angry, violent nationalism, seems to mm-hmm. be, you know, appears to be, at its surface, white supremacy only. But the appeal of the far right is very much related to their definitions of male domination and control, firing up men of all races. So it's not just white supremacy. It's, you know, masculinity focused uh, men who are experiencing fear of loss of their assumed right to dominate Mm -hmm. and control. Mm -hmm. The simple concept of of what it means to be a man is no mm-hmm. longer the unquestioned rule. And as we know, fear is at the root of hate and violence. And yes. uh, one of the things I found, well, the 2020 campaign was on there, so some angry Trump supporters, young men, young white men, mm-hmm. who were with something called incel, in, involuntary mm-hmm. celibacy as if Mm -hmm. they have a right (laughs) to have (laughs) sex with women, you know. (laughs) Talk about this, you know, the the fear that's at the root of this hate and violence relative to the gender roles. Yes. One of the uh, sections of my book that I actually most like is my section called The Strange Predicament of Boys' Masculinity. And it really gets at this issue, right? And it's based on the Peggy Ornstein book, Boys and Sex, which is such an interesting book, and then her articles in the Atlantic magazine. But what's fascinating about it is she decided to go out and for a two-year period interview 100 boys on masculinity, sexuality, and love as they see it, and also this sort of towering ideal of masculinity. And what's so fascinating when you read her stuff is that you could say there are almost like two themes that emerge in the material, bewilderment and also the sense of the flipping of binary power, meaning she and the boys that she interviewed seem completely bewildered about how to deal with this ideal of masculinity, right? I mean, they believe in it. They want to embrace it, but they don't know how to live it. And in fact, in living it, seem to find that these gender expectations keep coming back and flipping on them um, in, in a way that feels brutal, in a way that feels uh, bewildering, and they don't know what to do about it. And I thought that was fascinating. But again, here's another indication that there's so many gender contradictions at hand when the ideals of gender have to be lived. 
So even though these boys are getting tremendous rewards, right, kind of system rewards for trying to inhabit this category of masculinity and quite particularly white masculinity, the result is a lot of fear that they express, insecurity, Mm -hmm. and even outright weakness in knowing how to deal with each other because there's a lot of fear that they have of each other and being called out and becoming essentially victims of their own ideals. And that was really striking to me. You know, uh, you you have to kind of feel for these boys who are being interviewed. But back to your point, there's a kind of presumed privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And a kind of right, a kind of right to just be able to live these ideals of masculinity without such difficulty. But as they try to navigate that terrain, all the difficulties keep rising up before them. And you can just see that they're not quite sure how to proceed. So there's a kind of, you know, a kind of cowardly uh, sheep-like attitude that starts developing, which would seem to be the very inverse of masculinity, right? (laughs) By definition. (laughs) One would think so. And uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Catherine Bond Stockton, who's got a new book, Genders, the word gender with the parentheses around the last letter S, why gender is strange, even when it's played straight, how race and money are two of its most dramatic ingredients. And as you were describing that story and the, the, the confusion, the bewilderment, I'm reminded of an old skit that I loved by Bobcat Goldthwait, when it has this macho guy, this young guy, uh, white guy, beating mm-hmm. up on a gay guy, saying, as he's punching me, saying, I hate you, I hate you, because because you're queer, because you're a fag, and because because I'm kind of attracted to you, and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, yeah, classic. <laughs> Absolutely classic, right? And in fact, you know, to make your point, Bert, one of the things I say in that section is that boys' sex with girls is for bonding with boys. And wow, usually wow. when I say that to people, almost everybody goes like, oh, I totally get it, right? Yeah, yeah. That the type of high school sex that people often have is not always about loving attachment to your girlfriend <laughs> or your boyfriend, but particularly, I think, in the case of boys, and this could be true for girls too, right? Yeah. You have the sex because you cannot wait to talk about it with your boyfriends. Um, and so it's actually the talk that's going to be produced from your sex that helps you to bond with other boys, which may be far more important to you than bonding with the person uh, said to be your girlfriend or just somebody you're hooking up with you know, for the night. And I think that's a pretty profound point for us to contend with. Yeah, it it really is. And it's so true. Any straight guy out there listening to this knows exactly what you're talking about. You know, it, yeah. was, it was like a sport. You know, you go back and yes. say, oh, I caught this. I caught that. You know, yes. and, and it's, oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Ah. And, all the, and all the worries about performance, too, since, oh, yeah. right, the book is about boys and sex. I, I won't go into those stories because I'm not quite sure what I can say on your radio show. But it's fascinating to sort of see... Um, how worried the boys are about their performance, how long they're going to last. And so as one boy described it, it was like a sex became a task, you know, and they're they're worried then what girls are going to say about them the next day. And so they're just sort of like soaking, uh, almost like pre-soaking in shame and worry. Um, And as one boy said, I thought this was a very telling comment too, I would need to be some sort of Superman not to feel that I had to put other people down to raise myself up. And if you think about that, that's basically telling us that somebody would need to be a Superman 
in order to fight these dictates of masculinity, right? Mm. That's uh, That kind of says it all, doesn't it? Boy, it's so oppressive. It's so oppressive. And, you know, we've yeah. known about the control and domination of women and how oppressive that's been. We've known that for you know a few decades. But this mm-hmm. is kind of new here to realize and to focus on how oppressive it is to the so-called straight boys as well and the narrow right. definition. I, right. I have to bring up Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. <laughs> he grabbed the mantle of masculinity defender. I believe what he's doing is very well-researched political posturing. He knows this. He knows it mm-hmm. connects with this potential base. And mm-hmm. this, he knows what he's doing here. The right sees the culture war as the key right. to political victory. And I think they may be right. right. Holly said, masculine qualities being vilified, quote, have long been regarded as vital to self-government. The masculine qualities being vilified, as he says, have long been regarded Mm -hmm. as vital to self-government. Liberty, he said, requires virtue. And in particular, it requires manly virtues. Holly said the backlash against masculinity, against the narrow definition, can be seen in elementary schools where rambunctious boys are diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder and medicated into submission. These are his words. He asks, <laughs> can we be surprised that after years of being told they are the problem, that their manhood is the problem, that more and more men are withdrawing, now this is kind of weird, into the enclave of idleness and pornography and video games? He goes on mm-hmm. to say, the question is, how are we going to raise up good men today? We can start by repudiating the lie that America is a systematically oppressive nation and that men are systematically responsible. Uh, mm-hmm. systemically responsible, I should say. His, mm-hmm. his message to men is simple. Quote, you can be a tremendous force for good. Your nation needs you. The world needs you. What are your reactions? Does this reaction fit with what you are saying? And how how powerful? I mean, I, I feel like this stuff is just beginning. Uh, this uh, going, you know, like defending some masculinity and really focusing the culture war on that. Your comments, please. Right. Oh, so much to say there. Um, You know, one thing I would say, and one of the reasons why I'm so much against the terms opposite sex and then even same sex is because it's almost like we take a sword and cut babies in half at birth, right? If you sex a child, boy or girl, and then you believe that they're opposite sexes, you basically are confessing you've just made your baby half a human being, right? (laughs) They can only have these traits that fit in this column, and they can have none of those other traits, other Otherwise, according to Josh Hawley, right, they'll be infected by femininity, you know, if they're a boy or be infected by masculinity. So this notion in opposite sexes is tremendously damaging because it sets up this notion that we can only be half a human being until we find our other half in this, you know, natural heterosexuality. And then having found our missing half, we become whole through marriage or sex. But just think about what a nutty idea that is. If you said as a, to a parent, do you want to make half a human being at birth? They would say, no, I don't want to make half a human being. And I don't want to tell my girls that there are things that they can't do in life or things that they can't be. So what's interesting is I think this notion about opposite sexes is actually waning because nobody can actually reliably say, including Josh Hawley, 
what a man or woman is. So in most of these conversations, they won't necessarily go out on the limb. He might say, oh, I'm worried that, you know, boys are being, you know, criticized for their their rambunctiousness. But if you think about it, it is very hard to name any quality that you could say is a reliably masculine and not a female quality. So just take bravery, right? I'm sure Josh Hawley somewhere maybe would cite bravery, men's bravery. Well, I would submit that there is nothing braver than having another human being incubate in your own body for nine months. And now you've got to get that live creature out of your body through a fairly small space indeed, (laughs) often not a time of your own choosing. I don't think there's anything braver than the act of childbirth from what I can see. I haven't done it, but it looks exceedingly brave. I wouldn't do it. You know, I think... (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, I, I truly am not brave enough to, you know, to step up to that. So I'd love to see him give us a category, a trait of human being that can only be a man's trait and not a woman's trait. I defy him. I challenge him because I don't think it can be done. And I think he knows that. No, oh, he's just playing it because it serves him. No question about that. Yes. And when you think about bravery and, and the, you know, the old concept of, of the male warrior, well, the reality mm-hmm. was Kurdish women taking on ISIS, they were mm-hmm. the most powerful, the most effective, incredibly brave. They, they saved a lot of people's uh, lives. And right. it was women, right. Kurdish women. And there's no lack of right. brave, strong women over the years. There's right. No, no, right. And, and while, right. while we're on the subject of, of the far right and masculinity, a recent guest mm-hmm. on this show, University of Aragon political science professor Joseph Lowndes, said that Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who killed two people and shot another during unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is a perfect example of what you and I are talking about here. Powerful anti-democratic mm-hmm. masculinity violently mm-hmm. protecting the community and he's mm-hmm. he's being you know turned into a hero on the far right right do, right. do you think right. that professor's right concerning uh, the well any any comments on, on on the kind of worship of of Kyle Rittenhouse as the male Yeah, but again, I think this goes back to what you and I were just saying a couple of minutes ago, right? Because he had to portray himself as a figure fully fearful, right? So on that stand, the only way he was going to be able to defend what he did was to present himself as being exceedingly fearful in that moment and acting out of fear. And then what did he have to do? And everybody commented on it, right? He had to shed tears. And he had to shed tears in a way that would seem believable to people, particularly mm-hmm. to the jury, right? Mm-hmm. So he had to do what, what's being called in the press an ugly cry, right? He had to come up with a cry. And I'm, I'm not saying whether he was crying or not. I do not know. But I'm saying everybody knew that that was requisite, that the moment of what was called breaking down on the stand was the key moment in defending himself, So here's this, what, hero of masculinity? Mm. But the things he most had to perform on the stand were fear, insecurity, and breaking down and sobbing, sobbing like a child. I think that's pretty telling. And what does that tell? Well, I think, again, tells us that this notion that we have that we can uh, create these watertight categories of masculine and feminine that's never working out, right? We see it all the time in front of our very eyes. So it doesn't take a, a scholar or an academic like me 
right, to even have to point it out, we're seeing it. But somehow our powers of repression are so strong that on the right, they may add that all up and put it in the column called masculinity. But I just showed how, you know, attributes that are often projected onto women, right, breaking down and crying, expressing fear, willing to state what made them feel so insecure, were at the heart of this performance of the symbol of masculinity. So I, I think our powers of cultural repression on this front uh-huh. are, are stunning. But of course, that's what we need to do at every turn, including right uh, on the right. And all this sort of backlash against critical race theory is also kind of a defense on the gender front as well, for the very reasons that I cite in the book, right, is that if we take the history of race seriously in this country, that is constantly undermining our notion uh-huh. of the singular categories, male and female. So there's a whole nother offshoot, you know, to the backlash against CRT. Interesting. My goodness, this is an important topic, I must say. And I do think that as we move forward to 2022 and uh, 2024 elections, that uh, uh, the uh, macho, you know, Rittenhouse, you know, if he's upset, he has a gun. If he's afraid, he has a gun Mm -hmm. and he shoots people. Mm And mm-hmm. that's what works. And I, I, yeah. I, I've wondered about uh, Hispanic males. You know, the mm-hmm. Democrats have often thought, oh, they should naturally be with us because of the, uh, you know, racism and border uh, nonsense. But Hispanic males are often the most culturally conservative and sure. know, macho mm-hmm. stuff. It, though mm-hmm. it's widely understood to be a white supremacist movement, uh, it's much more powerful as male supremacy connects with men of all colors so there's Mm -hmm. this new term latinx because it's latina Mm -hmm. latino and latinx Mm -hmm. how does this Mm -hmm. word threaten traditional hispanic men what about that term latinx right so the term latinx has been developed to try to have a more non-binary term right because otherwise given language we have to say latino or latina uh, which again many people still embrace but i think there's been an interesting move you know, to add one letter, right, to the term, to actually get at the idea that, um, again, gender is just as complicated and as difficult and fundamentally non-binary among folks of Latin descent as it is for anybody else. So the term has kind of caught on, and I think it appears now in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as well, I think as of 2018, so that tells you, right, a term has gained some type of acceptance. And I've gone to some pretty interesting panels. I went to a great panel at the University of Utah where the term was being debated, although mostly folks on the panel wanted to embrace the term. Um, and I think another interesting aspect of the term, sometimes this isn't brought up because it's thought about you know, solely in relationship to gender and non-binary gender, but the X is also considered a kind of confrontation of the Latin language by indigenous uh, forms of language and culture, by indigenous Mesoamerican people. So the X is a kind of return, as it were, of indigenous issues inside um, Latinx communities. And I think that's important. I think we also know, kind of going back to Malcolm X, right, that the X is also a symbol of having to sign over your property. Ah. So indigenous groups having to sign over their property to colonizing Europeans. So the X is in some ways indicating a kind of open horizon, right? Opening up gender, but it's also a kind of uh, 
very sad and difficult nod to the history of erasure of indigenous peoples inside the story of, of Latinx populations. So it's a very interesting move. And it'll be fascinating to see where it goes. You know, will it catch on or will some other move be made? But it's, it's very much in the conversation right now, and rightly so. And I, I, as you talk about Malcolm X, uh, I, I believe one of the uh, reasons he chose X is because he was Malcolm Little, but he wasn't really Malcolm Little. That was the name given to him. He, I think by right. choosing the X, uh, he said, right. I, I got to have, I am who I am. I'm not who you, you know, the boundaries that you stuck around me. Fascinating right. stuff. For those who may right. have just tuned in, uh, we're talking about gender Genders, a new book, gender with a, a uh, parenthesis around the word s, because yeah, it's 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 uh, liberating really to get out of these uh, narrow bonds. And our our guest today is Catherine Bond Stockton, who's got that uh, new book out. And w- interesting for young people when when asked to describe the attributes of the ideal guy, today's mm-hmm. young men cite aggression dominance, stoicism, and sexual prowess. What about white single women who are fed a steady diet of chiclet, as they say? What are their (laughs) definitions for their own preferred identity? Absolutely. So there's a great book on this topic by Stephanie Harzuski. The book came out in 2011. And I learned so much from reading this because I personally uh, do not sit around reading chiclet. But what became clear to me in reading it is this idea that um, women are fed a notion right now, I'm going to say particularly white women, but not white women only, that you could buy your way to gender happiness, you know, in a world of things. So, um, and and of course, what happens to be coming on the cover of many of these books are shoes, right? So you have a high-heeled shoe and with toe cleavage, uh, as we learn. And of course, if you think about sex in the city, right, it's enduring appeal. So in the late 1990s, we have sex in the city. And now, of course, we're going to have another installment of it. And some people say that sex in the city is sort of the ultimate post-feminist book, right? A kind of book that where the personal is no longer political, it's really just personal. Um, And the idea that I find this kind of really interesting in Chicklet is that the man in many of these stories is kind of a cipher, and a background figure. So here you would think like the man would be very prominent because these books are, you know, have quite quite a lot to do with sex. But really the man is seen as more of a means to a lifestyle, you know, or a luxury wedding or a beauty boost. So in some ways, Eros goes not so much towards men and women's relationship, but Eros really goes into luxury items and chiclet. And that was really striking for me. You know, if we go back to what we're talking about in an earlier segment, when I said, you know, boys have sex with girls for boys. Mm-hmm. Um, in, th- in this case, in these texts, over and over, women have sex with men for shoes. <laughs> and so you get a very kind of interesting um, circumstance that Harzuski calls romances of the self. And I thought that was really interesting that these female characters are seen as having uh, their strongest relationship, again, to luxury items, but also to professional ascendancy, you know, kind of climbing the professional ladder. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of business-based diction inside Chiclet. So I, I learned a lot from that book and thought it was a kind of fascinating index of some of the stereotypes, right, that women have to wrangle with uh, in the public domain. I have long looked at 
super high heels and women and thought, that's going to hurt. What the heck? How oppressive <laughs> is that? What? You know, come on. It just seems really oppressive to me to put yourself in pain. Well, one topic yes. I know has been exceptionally upsetting to right-wing Americans, and that's allowing people to choose bathroom by their chosen identity. Yes. Tell us about that. You say gender-defined public restrooms are relatively new. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So here I was reading some research by a colleague of mine, Terry Kogan, uh, in our law school, and I was getting schooled sort of on the history of the bathroom. I thought I knew some of this. But I think what's interesting is, right, when you see on the bathroom door, man or woman, right, right, you, right. you know that the bathroom is sexy. You. That, that seems clear. But I think maybe what we don't realize is, is that we're still being sexed by 19th century norms. And that is to say these old assumptions that women are a weaker, more vulnerable, more moral sex, and therefore they need protecting from men, right? So in a very interesting way, the bathroom door is telling us separate but unequal because in many ways i think women are being told whom they should fear and whom they should desire when they walk into the door of the bathroom marked woman otherwise why are we keeping bathrooms separate men and women right so there's a whole discourse around protecting women still that is very vibrant and sometimes attached to people's wish to continue to have sex segregated restrooms but it actually goes back to the 19th century separate spheres ideology, which is that women can kind of govern the scene in their own homes. But when they put a toe outside their home, they're at risk. And therefore, many hotels started creating kind of ladies-only parlor spaces where they could literally go and rest when they were out in the city. And those then sort of led to their being separate bathroom. So that, I think yeah. that's a very interesting aspect most people don't know. There's a lot we don't know. And I do know from going to various different events in the before times, uh, the lines for the women's room were much, much longer and much more frustrating <laughs> than for men. I don't, somebody designs <laughs> right. them badly. It doesn't seem fair. Right. So right. There, we can, you say, no one really knows how genders are changing day by day. day, by day. You write that we can spot leaps or shifts as we look back. What what do you think some positive responses uh, might come out or of of looking into these quandaries that I think we're just starting to do around you know our quandaries around sex and gender? What what mm -hmm. leaps might we recognize having originated from this time? Yeah, I think right now, I think there is a lot of confusion about what a man or what a woman is. So if you really try to pin somebody down, I've done this in the medical environment, you know, where I've gone to some medical lecture and I said, could you please tell me, since we're still making boys and girls at birth, what a man or a woman is and nobody wants to touch it, right? And I think one of the things is that's changing, that's very positive, is that people's surface presentations, right, are becoming more various, and sometimes more exuberant and sometimes more gleeful in the ways that mm -hmm. people are allowing themselves to dress or present. And I actually think that might be a very good change for us is to basically say, why shouldn't anybody be allowed to present their surface form as they like? And what we need to do is stop projecting a kind of specified depth onto the surface that we see, right? So I'll give you an example. If you saw my partner walking on a city street you might just pass her by and think she's a, a white straight woman, right, from her surface. 
But in many ways, you would be projecting onto her uh, a series of normativities that are not her own, which is to say, you don't know how she thinks in her head. You don't know what gender norms she's already breaking in her private life. You don't know that she's also partnered with a big old queer, namely me, right? So I think if we could stop making presumptions based on a surface presentation that we see and allow and glory and more type of surface presentations uh, multiplying before us, which I think is happening, severing the notion of surface from depth would be a really great place to begin. And just to tie it back to, you know, what we were talking about boys, in some ways it would just be great if we could begin to imagine that masculinities are really surface forms, right? What if we just saw masculinities as matters of gesture, dress, and hair, but didn't see masculinities as rooted in specific behaviors Mm. or exclusive definitions or docile loyalties to a set ideal. That would be transformative. Sounds like what a lot of people like Martin Luther King talked about with the history arcing toward justice and and seeing people (laughs) for the content of their character, not the surface. Very interesting yeah. stuff. Very interesting stuff. And uh, it's been great to talk to you. And, and it's it's kind of hopeful. It's it's a difficult time. It's a confusing time to face all this stuff. But it's good to face reality and try to get yes. out of the cave that we've been stuck in. Thank you. Indeed. Embrace the confusion, right? <laughs> oh, boy. It's hard to do, but it, it works better. Thank you so much for being with us today. The new book is Genders. Catherine Bond Stockton, thank you so much for being with us today and for a sense of uh, challenging but hopeful times ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. A total pleasure. And now from 1965, The Barbarians. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.